mean, I've been in retail, you know, management for years. And I was like, okay, if the tenants aren't happy. They're my customer. Mm-hmm. I got a problem. Yeah. So who am I going to hold accountable? The property manager. And when I tried to partner with the property manager at first and they had acquired so many assets so quickly that they just, they didn't have, they didn't have the support staff to be able to take care of me. And I went from being a, you know, a a good relationship for them to being just kind of a number and a cue. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Before we get to this week's show, I'd like to make you an offer. You can video chat with me if you like. It's something people do with me all the time, and it's completely free every Wednesday evening. This is a free strategy session done over video chat. Anything and everything you want to talk about in regards to real estate investing. There's no sales call here. There's no ulterior motive. I'm not going to pitch you on a mentoring program. This is really just a way for you and I to connect. I talk to real estate investors all the time at RIA meetings, but there are only so many meetings I can attend having a family and a full-time job. And I prefer the one-on-one connections anyway. doesn't matter if you're a brand new investor just starting out or an experienced investor. I can act as a sounding board on a deal you're looking at, or maybe just answer some questions you have about real estate investing. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash connect and fill out the form there to schedule a call. I look forward to speaking with you. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. You're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest this week got her start in real estate investing using turnkey properties. She then transitioned into Burr Investing, which she still does now, uh, and now is a partner in over $240 million worth of real estate, from single-family homes to mobile home parks, multifamily, assisted living, and self-storage. She's the founder of Ash Wealth and also teaches others to achieve financial independence through her coaching program. Whitney Hutton, welcome to the Road Thank to Family you. Freedom. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, we have not had enough parents on. We've had too many single people on. <laughs> Nothing against you single people, but yeah. it is called the road to family freedom. So It's nice to have people on that have the actual experience because most of the time we have to sort of apply right. it to families at yeah. the end of the podcast. So. Yeah. Always good to have someone that's already experiencing yeah, it. Yeah, it's a yeah. whole other element. Right. <laughs> Layers of complexity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, well, let's get right into it. Do you recall an aha moment for when you decided to, to pursue real estate? Uh, well, so my foray into real estate actually started in 2002, and it was an accidental house hack. I had purchased a, a single family property with a significant other, and about a month after closing, the relationship fell through, and here I had a house, a mortgage. And the house needed a huge rehab on it. And I had, I was like, well, what am I going to do? So I 
you know, put a bunch of roommates in there and people who unfortunately were um, pretty, uh, pretty okay with living in a construction zone. And then about fast forward 11 months later, I hadn't paid for rent. I was pocketing cash every single month. And then I was able to force equity on the property and sell it for $52,000 more. So, and then it was just like, That's oh my great. gosh, it just totally opened my eyes. Wasn't so lucky <laughs> on my second deal. Um, but, you know, I uh, took an incredible amount of lumps in that second deal. But uh, fast forward a few years later, I mean, I felt you know pretty comfortable in, you know, when we hit, you know, in 2016, there's a lot of turmoil going on politically. And we just really, really realized that my husband's pension plan was just at like kind of the whims of like whatever political party would be in office. It didn't matter who. And so we were just like, you know what? We have to take matters into our own hand. And I said, let's go back into real estate. And of course my husband was like, do you remember the time? (laughs) You almost (laughs) lost all that money that you made on the first deal. I'm like, "Uh, I do. And I think I can do it better. So, you know, uh, anyways, he had a lot of faith in me. And then we purchased our first rental here in Colorado and then realized we had invested entirely wrong for what our goals were. Uh, fortunately, real estate, somewhat, even though it's illiquid, is very forgiving and you can kind of reposition assets in order to fast forward your, your or, you know, perpetuate yourself down your, your path. Did you, that first house hack, what what were the numbers like sure. when that you bought that you bought as a personal yes, residence correct yes. uh, i bought it for $171,000 put about $8,000 into it and then um sold it 11 months later for 229 somewhere like that yep but, uh, uh and were you oh sorry, i was going to say ahead. and the cool thing about it or the not so cool thing about it depending on how you view the lending at that time was that i didn't put any of my own money into it so I was able. Mm-hmm. That's great. So you were able to, uh, because it was 2002, the, the wild west, uh, <laughs> and you know, people were able to get in for a lot less and it turned out well for you. Some people did not turn out well, obviously. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I borrowed $7,000 from a family member. Okay. And then three weeks later, I was able to take out a HELOC to get to 103% financing wow. in your crazy times. And then, you know, here I had a house. You know, you know, for me though, I did, I did generally understand what I was doing at that point in time. And I knew that I had a house that was undervalued. I mean, I had no idea. The the term Burr wasn't even coined back then. I knew, you know, I had a realtor too, that was very knowledgeable with doing these sorts of things. And he had been, you know, purchasing rentals in Fort Collins, Colorado for 20 years. So he was like, don't worry about it. Like Mm -hmm. you could sell, I'll buy this thing from you tomorrow and you won't have lost a dime. Yeah, Yeah. I felt pretty comfortable. It's house hacking. Every person I talk to, um, if they're talking, I really don't know how to get started in real estate or I want to buy into the market, buy my first house, but I don't really, you know, the market's so hot right now. I'm like, buy a house hack for the love of God. You know, I mean. (laughs) Stop paying somebody else's mortgage. Yes, it's just. But I love my renters. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we have a a friend of mine, uh, Spencer here in, in town. He's a young kid. Uh, hard charging, and he's got like a seven-bedroom house, and he rents out to he furnishes it. His, he furnishes the rooms, and he rents it out to long-term renters. And so he has six roommates, and but they pay his mortgage plus cash flow. And you know, and he's young, so he can do it now. You know, obviously we wouldn't be able to do it as a, somebody with a family, but if you live somewhere where there's duplexes and triplexes and fourplexes, it's just an amazing way to get in. You can get in for with a residential, very favorable residential loans. 
Yeah. Anyway, we've covered this before. <laughs> there are some <laughs> great benefits, but yeah. people don't want to deal with it a lot of times. So yeah. they're lost. So what went wrong on that second house? Well, you know, there's such things as immutable laws of real estate, one of them being location, location, location. <laughs> I purchased a mountain home at 8,000 feet, had 19 steps from the driveway to the deck. It was amazing for somebody, you know, young like me. It was awesome. But when I realized I had actually, you know, the the mountain town that I purchased in Estes Park is at the time, and I still think it is now, um, heavily a second home market. So the, my clientele, when I went to resell were older, older people in you know, half of them, they would get to, you know, they parked in the driveway and they're at 8,100 feet. So they're out of breath already. And then they get halfway up the steps. They're like, no, not for a second home. Not going to do it. You know, not only that, like the safety in the winter time if somebody was going to live year round. So it really took me, it was two bedroom, one bath. So I, I just hadn't purchased an asset that I knew that I could get out of pretty, pretty readily. Then I had legal issues with that. Because whenever I finally found a buyer, we were going through the sales process and in the inspection phase, the buyer, uh, the inspector flagged the back retaining wall on the home and it was compromised. And so the seller wanted me to replace it. And I was like, just get my neighbor to move her school bus. <laughs> like she had a, a buddy of hers living in a school bus. And I'm like, nothing happened to the wall until that school bus showed yeah. up. Well, I signed an addendum saying that I would only bring 6000 to closing. So I locked everybody into the deal. And of course, I was kicking and screaming. My realtor, you know, was very smart. <laughs> and uh, the wall ended up costing about $27,000 by the time it was all said and done. I mean, the buyer had used the most expensive contractor. I mean, anyways, fast forward, yeah. this bomb-proof wall that's now behind the house just a matter of like a couple of days after closing, my neighbor moved the bus back into position. Yeah. Mm. The bus fell into oh. the roof of the house. Oh. <sighs> so, anyways, that's the, the, and this is where my husband, you know, says, remember that house? Yeah. <laughs> and we, I was getting calls. The, the, the call came on a Saturday afternoon. We were laying on the couch. It was rainy, drizzly. We were cuddled up, like watching a movie. And I get a call. And when you, I pick up the phone, you just hear all this yelling. <laughs> a siren going off in the background. And then lo and behold, it's my realtor. I'm like, wait a second, what happened? Um, anyway, so that, I was sweating bullets for a couple of days until I realized that I actually had no, um, my liability in that situation had ended. And anyways, so, so you dodged, we took a pot. You, dod- you dodged that. <laughs> we dodged yeah. that. Um, well, I mean, it, we everything was above board and yeah, legal. Yeah. Uh, so there, there was no shortcutting, yeah, yeah. you know, here. Uh, it's just that the onus on the construction didn't fall on yeah. me. It fell on the, the buyer to work that out directly with the contractor that he had hired. Wow. So uh, anyways, fast forward, I, you know, you know, a few months, I was like, hey, let's go buy a house. <laughs> My husband said, no. Yeah, yeah. So we purchased a condo here in town. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to break him in. I'm going to have to wear him down. So we purchased a condo here in town, fixed it up. And of course, right when we get it all fixed up, our realtor comes over and goes, you know, it's 2008. Well, I shouldn't say it was 2008, but you know, it was right about that time. Housing prices, was the lowest it was ever going to get in Boulder for us to get into a house. Yeah. She goes, you know, I could sell this condo for you know, 30 grand more than we had paid for it. I'm like, 
let's go buy a house. You flipped the condo. We flipped the condo into a house. I and mean, this time we bought the house with the intentions of converting it into a rental. Gotcha. So uh, we really, you know, worked with our realtor who understood the market in Boulder. We really took very, you know, even though we might have wanted like the big basement or, you know, a larger backyard and all these different things, you know, going in with the intention of knowing what we were going to do with the house afterwards. Now, fast forward, we're here. We're still in this house today. (laughs) The market kind of ran away on us. But even then, I mean, it's still wonderful for us because, you know, with, the market growing, we and rents escalating here in Boulder. We pay less to live in our house than if we had to go rent now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that. I know the so, whole the whole Denver Boulder market has just gone nuts. It, Quite it Seattle is. or San Francisco level, but it's it's definitely gotten hot. So, so. yeah, we have a huge influx of California money right now. Yeah, so same here in Las Vegas. Um, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I can't answer a question when I'm um, yawning. So um, I'll have to pick up the no, 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 It's no, no, not no, no, you. It's nothing. not you. <laughs> no, it, it's the five-year-old. The um so that was so 2002 was the first house. Uh mm-hmm. and then uh how how soon after that first house did you buy the bus house? <laughs> Oh, immediately. I took that all, I took all that money I made on the first house and I put it into the second gotcha. house. Gotcha. Uh, and then uh, how soon after that did you buy the condo? It, we paused for about a year, okay. year and a half, gotcha. actually. And then we got into the condo and then the condo to our second gotcha. house. And then um, we've been in this house, uh, actually to date, 10 years, but I think it took us about seven years. It, it was until, you know, uh, from two thousand six years, 2010 until 2016. Uh, until you bought your and next house. From, until we bought our um, first intentional. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. You know, it went outside of our primary. Yeah. So, and, so this one was the fourth house that you bought intending it to be a rental sort of, but then it turned into your primary residence. Yeah. We just, it, we loved, we fell in love with the location. It's right next to our daughter's school. Yeah. And, you know, again, I, we got, we nailed it, right? Location, location, yeah. location. <laughs> We're like, why go pay somebody else to rent, yeah. you know, when we can put in our own rental. Um, but it, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice little nest egg for us because it really um, played into us being able to grow our portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the girl, the amount of equity we were able to put into it as a down payment, and then you know just like the natural like market growth that we experienced when we start getting into you know picking up our turnkeys, it was a nice asset for us to have to be able to leverage again. So, so talk to me about that because that's uh, it's a, a strategy. You know, we have a HELOC, we have substantial equity in our house, and you know it's uh, I'm I know people who have used HELOCs and things to buy turnkeys, but talk to us about that process. Talk to us about what you did. Well, so we actually held on to our, we took a HELOC out on the property and that initially is kind of a fail safe for us. Like we had a pot of savings that we were going to continue to invest in, in, in rental real estate. But, you know, say we got out to six homes, which that's what we were projecting we could get to before we had to go find more capital. We could do that. And then say like there was a major repair that we needed sure. to, to do on one of the rentals. We could pull the money from our HELOC and then use the cash flow to pay gotcha. it down. So, but as we near the end of 2017, you know, we had 
you know, six properties under contract. We, or excuse me, we had six properties that we had closed on. We had another four under contract, like through the last two months. So we were really kind of staring down at having to figure out a way to actually leverage the HELOC to continue to grow. And that's actually when I uh, was let go from my job. I mean, part of this whole impetus was we needed to create future equity growth for, you know, as a pension kind of replacement for my husband's pension plan. And then also cash flow now, because I didn't, my job had an expiration date on it. We knew that I was going to get let go at some point in time. We just didn't know when. So that eventually happened. And then, you know, I was very, I was sad. I mean, who likes being let go? I mean, even if it's a layoff, like, you know, and not only that, I had two properties under contract in my name at that point in time. And so I called my lender and he said, nope, I can't lend to you. So I cried for a couple hours. And then it dawned on me, I'm like, wait a second, my husband can buy a house. (laughs) (laughs) So I called him back. And by the end of that day, I mean, I was let go at like 9 a.m. And by the end of the day, we had everything moved over to my husband. Oh, that's great. Like lending was under process, you know, and then we, it it only delayed closing in a couple of days. Um, But we were able to kind of problem solve our way through that. But my husband said, okay, once we get these two properties closed, what are we going to do? We still have the capital issue. And now you don't have a job, a W-2 to be able to get additional loans. I'm like, but I got my 401k back. (laughs) (laughs) So we had been slacking away, you know, we had really in this time, we'd been learning just a lot about how money works. And we'd really gone down the path of being able to max out our, our, our pension or our, retirement plans. So we had a, a good chunk of capital built up there. Okay. The boys. So you had six properties closed on, you owned them. You had two that were under contract when you were let go from your job and you transferred those over to your husband. So now you've got eight, correct? And yes, those six, those six properties, how did you finance those first six properties? Were they just conventional Fannie, Freddie, 20% down, 25% yep. down? Actually, we did 20%, 20% down. We worked through, um, worked with a broker in order to use 20% down. Yeah. And that that's always been kind of interesting to me and how some lenders, you know, you know, I don't know exactly what the parameters were, but you could take two different people and one lender would say, nope, you're at 20%. No, you're at 25. So we just, we can, we had, you know, when we were shopping around our lending process, we were, you know, finding the same thing getting told the same story. So we finally settled on working with a mortgage broker mm-hmm. who could get us leveraged at 80-20. Gotcha. You make our capita go further. And were, you, were those financed under strictly your name, those first six ones? or The first six, yes. yes. And then, so, you know, the Fannie Freddie limit is 10 per individual. Is that kind of what you're doing is sort of trying to, to separate that so that you can have 10 and your husband can have 10? Oh yeah, we like we you know Fanny and Freddie Mac are gotcha. you know if there were people I'd have them over for yeah. dinner because it's been amazing what what they've been able to do for us. But uh, we actually can only pick up nine in each of our names because we own our primary yes. together. So that that counted against against each gotcha. of us. So had I known that, <laughs> yeah, I probably would have. I mean, it's one more property, but. Uh, and now I know how to get into commercial lending, which really just sounds scary, but it's not that much different. And I actually find it easier than conventional lending, but the rates are so attractive right now. Yeah. And to put 20% down instead of 25%, yeah. you know, I, you know, I would 
personally, I would leverage the conventional spots as much as I could. Yeah, that's sort of where we're at right now. And we actually interviewed a guy by the name of Chris from the stealthyrich.com who has like 52 single family homes in Houston. And only one of them has been bought by Fannie Freddie uh, with finance and the rest. Every one of them are portfolio loans. And, you know, his explanation for it is, look, you know, getting a Fannie and Freddie loan is like getting a colonoscopy and a tax audit at the same time where the portfolio lenders, the rates are not as great and the terms are not as great, but you, you walk in and they go, okay, show us what you got. Okay. And you walk out that afternoon, you get a loan. But it's, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's definitely, I think somebody, if you can, you can go the Fannie and Freddie route, use those, you, you know, Brittany and I are buying some homes right now and we're, I'm trying to keep it all, those initial loans all on my income and she's, her name's not on the loan at all. And then when we're ready, we're, we're going to start transitioning, getting some loans under hers, and then we'll go from there. We'll figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with what, you know, Chris was saying. And here's the difference, you know, the feedback on that. When you're getting conventional lending, they're underwriting you personally. Mm-hmm. When you're getting a commercial or portfolio loan, generally they're underwriting the asset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, can the asset perform? And, you know, you're purchasing through an LLC, so they don't actually... You know, the how they foreclose is a little quicker and easier for them gotcha. if they need to take back the asset. So, but I mean, I still have not found a commercial lender or a portfolio lender that won't make you sign a like bad boy carve out, as yeah. they call it, or a personal guarantee. Yeah. So you ended up with 10 that first year, mm-hmm. is that correct? So yes. yes, we closed out the year at 10. I, you know, my husband thinking that I was completely nuts. He was like, what are you going to do with your 401k? And I'm like, go buy a house. And actually, you're going to go buy a house. <laughs> <laughs> Check that. Not, not me, but yeah. you. But, you know, that was, it was such a mindset shift for us that first year of it just growing, just understanding how you can, you know, even using turnkey in the MLS, just how you can generate cash flow for yourself generate equity. Like we could, we, we could see the vision that's so hard, I think in, in our culture today. I mean, there, I mean, people are very attached to the W2 job and it's only, again, it's the golden handcuffs, <laughs> but that was just a huge eye opening experience for us. Gotcha. But then we were like, okay, great. Like, what do we do when we get another 10? Like, how are we going to continue growing and scaling? And that's when we, it really dawned on us after getting those first 10 in the first year is that we actually had to figure out a way to do the rehab method, you know, use the Burr method. Yeah. Gotcha. So we could, so we could scale. Well, before we move on to the Burr, cause I want to hear about those, yeah. um, the markets, uh, I think I've heard you say you and your turnkey markets were sort of Kansas city and Indianapolis. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, and the, those you've had great, You've had no complaints there, uh, cash flowing, uh, happy with the property managers and things like that? Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. So this is another realization for us, you know, especially picking up turnkey, you know, just to dispel it, turnkey is not a passive investment. You know, it makes it easier for you to enter the market, but yeah, it's totally not bad. Uh, so uh, when we got into Indianapolis, that was the first market we were in. Cash flowing very well. We had uh, 
B plus to A minus assets. I mean, in great markets, uh, appreciating very well. Actually, we uh, after two years of owning them, we've been able to get a 55% average return on all those assets. Wow. We're repositioning them right now. And that's just on the appreciation, wow. not factoring the cash flow oh, yeah. and you know, tenant pay down, everything yeah. like that. So are we, you know, I don't know where else you can get a 55% yeah. return in the stock market. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, anyways, we hit an issue with the property manager. We were very satisfied with them when the turnkey provider placed us with the property manager. It was a vertically integrated process, but then they got bought out. That was something that we couldn't control. Mm-hmm. And we, we went through the acquisition process and it, it was fine for us. It was smooth. We didn't really know any different until things started happening. Our, you know, rent was getting paid later and later and later on a couple of our properties. We could tell that, you know, through watching the maintenance tickets in the portals that tenants weren't happy, things weren't getting repaired. And this is really where my, you know, business owner mindset kicked in. I was like, okay, I mean, I've been in retail, you know, management for years I was like, okay, if the tenants aren't happy. They're my customer. I got a problem. So who am I going to hold accountable? The property manager. And when I tried to partner with the property manager at first, and they had acquired so many assets so quickly that they just they didn't have they didn't have the support staff to be able to take care of me. And I went from being a good relationship for them to being just kind of a number in a queue. Mm-hmm. And anyways, we fired them. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we, we worked with them. We tried it. We tried, we gave it a couple months, things weren't working. And that's, it was nerve wracking to do that from a distance, but I'm like, Hey, if you're not, if this person was an employee in my company giving this type of performance, I would fire them. Yeah. So we did, we fired them and we moved property managers and we were, you know, on the second property manager, we've been very, very thankful for how they've taken care of our tenants and stayed on top of repairs and construction. So Yes. Uh, we, we interviewed Allie Boone on episode, yeah. um, sorry, let me look this up, episode 24, and it has been released at this time, but it will be by the time yours comes out. And she talked a lot about turnkey operators start off great. They're new in a market. They're growing, they're growing, they're growing. And they, at some point, the property management side of it just goes crazy. And it's mostly because, as you just alluded to, the scale, they don't know how to scale. And they get to a Mm -hmm. point where the customer service is great when they're dealing with 50 properties. But when they're suddenly dealing with 250 properties, now the systems start to break down that they didn't, you know, put in place. So I always tell people, look, for property manager you have now, that's great. If you love them, oh my God, I love my property managers so much. Talk. Like constantly, Get another constantly one. have them in the back pocket because you never know when they're just mm-hmm. going to go cuckoo for cocoa puffs. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, you know, and that's you know, I work in a, in the startup, you know, tech startup industry now, and you know, with that hyperscaling, that 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 growth trajectory, I mean, just trying to manage the business there. I mean, our systems are breaking down every six months because we're doubling. Yeah. You know, imagine if a property manager were doing that, they're doubling from 10 to 20, 20 to 40, 40 to 80, you know, and, and that's just a modest growth of doubling, you know? Yeah. So yeah, we actually, um, you know, we're actually going through a property management change um, here in Kansas city because our, the person, the property manager that I've been working with that has helped me scale my portfolio in Kansas city He's, he's looking in his business and he's, you know, making a very intelligent decision on where his genius is 
And it's not the property management side. He's like looking at it and he goes, you know what? There's other property managers here that have better systems than I do. So he's like moving off the property management so he can you know, stay on the deal acquisition side, and the construction side. So everybody has their zone of genius. It's a very aware property manager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, self-aware. I, yeah, self-aware. self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the horror stories that we've heard, it's just funny because it seems like a lot of, and I'm sure it's with anybody who expands too quickly, they sort of lose yeah. that self-awareness and in the like, oh, we're growing, we're growing, it's amazing, and then turns yeah. on them. And I can turn so quickly, yeah. you know. Yeah. You moved on to the Burr method. Are you still investing long distance or are you doing those closer to home? No, we're doing everything in the distance primarily because we have not seen how we can Well, first of all, it just doesn't make sense with the capital that we have to put in a property here in Colorado. It would make sense if we can make the returns, cash on cash returns. But when we had our property here in Colorado, we were so excited to be in the market. We were so excited that we found it. And it was such an amazing deal. Then it was like, wait a second, we're only making, we put all this cash into it and we're only making $400 a month. (laughs) I was like, we can't, we can't scale this. But yeah, so uh, it makes, we could take that same equity and turn it into about $1,200 to $1,400 outside of Colorado. Yeah, gotcha. nice. So what market are you guys investing in for Burr? Primarily Kansas same City market. and Indianapolis. Gotcha. So you've already got the, you already have sort of the boots on the ground. It's markets you're familiar with and, and they're yeah. cash flow markets. And it's great. So get a little, a little sweet spot of appreciation out of both of them yeah, too. They're not straight, just cash flow markets. They've, they've also got some appreciation. That's great. Um, how did you go about building your team on the ground there? You know, cause with a burr, now you're talking, now you need the dreaded contractor <laughs> and, uh, a deal act, someone to help you with deal acquisition. So probably a realtor or a wholesaler of some sort. Uh, how did you go about building that team? Well, funny in both markets, uh, we started off with turnkey mm-hmm. and so the, the path is a little different in each market, but in Kansas city, we picked up three turnkeys with the, this particular provider. Uh, we get to the end of two, the 2016. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to ask if he would walk us through a construction. You know, maybe he's got enough deal flow that he can't take it all down. Yeah. And then, you know, he'll kind of like throw us a bone and then, you know, walk us through how to do this and we can learn. Yeah. He said, sure, you pay me a property management fee. I'll do it. Or excuse me, project management fee. I'll do the whole thing for you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> And we under just underwrote that into the numbers of the deal. So we were leveraging his ability to find deals through other wholesalers, um, you know, scouring the market. He knew the market really well. Um, we were leveraging his contractors. And then, and of course, he was getting paid multiple ways. He was getting paid on the, the purchase of the home, project management fee. Yeah. Uh, we'd place the, you know, with property managed with him. So he got the project, or excuse me, the property management fee. And then if we decided to flip it out, he also got the, the commission on the sale. So that's how we entered in Kansas City. Now we've, through that experience, we've made contacts with other construction crews. We continue to build our team because as we were scaling there, we couldn't, the con- contractor could only do one job at a yeah, time. Yeah. So we needed to bring on more team, more contractors in order to do other projects. Because gotcha. last year we were, doing, we were doing two or three deals at a time. Gotcha. And then in Indianapolis, when we moved you know, move to our new property manager, they actually have an in-house ability to handle either very heavy, maybe like a 5,000 or a 10,000 just cosmetic Mm -hmm. 
makeover on a yeah. house, or they would contract out to one of their contractors in order to do larger projects. And again, they got a property management fee from that too. Oh, that's, that's great. Cool. Uh, or project management gotcha. fee. One of the, you know, it's always, people always say, well, you know, God, how do you find good contractors? And, you know, come, occasionally you hear somebody say, well, you know, ask other real estate investors. I'm like, no, don't ask other real estate <laughs> investors because they're not going to give you their good ones. So <laughs> talk to either realtors or property managers because they want your business. And they're going to give mm -hmm. you the people who they've worked with that are that are good. And so that's, you know, that's always the it's so funny to me. It's like, oh, just ask other real estate investors. Like, yeah, you're gonna get their their C level guy that that you know they don't like working with. So so how many properties like you've done? You had 10 turnkeys, is that correct? Yes. Okay, yes. and then how many burrs have you done? 10 turnkeys MLS properties, and we've done 10 burrs. Oh wow. Actually, we've done more burrs than that. We we are holding ten burrs right now. Holding ten burrs, and they're all yes, they I all think have we've done eleven or twelve. And you've all you've right refinanced out of all of them. We've refinanced or sold. You've put you've put long term loans on them, or yes, or blank. gotcha, gotcha. Thirty year debt, or we've flipped to another investor. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah, that's good. Talk to us about your transition to syndications. Yeah. So. That our goal for our first year of real estate, I mean, I didn't even get to tell you what our goals were. It was to purchase one the first year, two the second year, three the third year. You know, yeah. just take so a nice, easy, stack. steady path. Yeah, yeah. Instead, you bought 10? <laughs> Instead, we bought 10. <laughs> we were, but we, you know, every time you, you know, hit a plateau, we had to figure out a new person or a system in order to break through that plateau. Yeah. So this entire time, I am building cash flow to get to supplant my income. I sat down with my husband last November, almost a year ago, and I said, Hey, guess what? I have got my income plus replaced. I'm good. Like, you know, you know, is there a way that I can start, you know, at least reducing my hours, transitioning out of my job? And he goes, Fine with that too. <laughs> I just like <laughs> I just smiled. I'm like, yay, that's Great. <laughs> I got to do this 20 more times. <sighs> you know, big, no. big breath in. I was like, okay, well, we could, we had a, a few ways of doing it. We could do 20 more burrs. We could try to figure out a way to uh, get more capital, partner and pick up just more house, houses, cash for purchase, or we take down a multifamily unit mm -hmm. and just, you know, spend six scale. months yeah. to scale. Yeah. So, we, uh, in this time, and actually started, I, you know, again, you know, my evolution of money, I started moving my, you know, retirement funds into a self-directed environment. I invested in notes and a couple other, you know, I started dabbling in syndications. We can argue all day whether you should put a syndication in your retirement right. account or not. But it got me thinking, I'm like, okay, great. I can start trying to figure out a way to purchase the multifamily unit. And the deeper I got into trying to build my team, I'm like, I got to solve lending. I got to solve the market. I got to solve the realtor. And then I, you know, it's easier to get in a single family. I feel like because, you know, everybody needs to buy a house yeah. or can buy a house. Like there's really, you, know, you don't have to have much experience, but you start getting into multifamily. Everybody wants to understand what your experience is. Mm -hmm. And I could use my single family experience for that, but not for the size of unit that I wanted to take down. Yeah. So now I needed a key partner. I needed all these different things. Yeah. And then I'm like, wait a second. What if I just didn't, we take some of this equity, reposition it out of our single family portfolio and 
go in as an LP. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, you know, we kind of wrestled between being trying to figure out all the puzzle pieces and being on the GP or just like continuing to invest as a limited partner in a syndication deal. And so that's the, the, that's the path we took. And I've built since taking that path at the beginning of the year, I've built several different relationships with different operators and have now grown into the ability to provide value on the general partnership. Gotcha. So for our listeners who don't know much about syndications, can you describe what you mean by LP, GP and things like that? Sure. So a syndication, we can start with that definition and a group of people that go and buy a building or an asset. That's what it is. Syndication means group. Mm -hmm. So when you or looking at the actual deal structure though, there's usually a the active part, the team that's actually gonna go buy it. They're considered the general partnership. And then the limited partners are the people that are bringing the equity to the deal. The passive. In order to get a slice of the pie. So their responsibility ends at the time that the investment actually closes and goes in, under operational management with the general partnership. Gotcha. And with a syndication, typically you're being paid a cash flow, a yearly cash flow based on your investment. And then there's also a planned equity bump at the end when uh, when they sell or refinance the property. Yeah. So think of it in terms, if you're doing a Burr strategy, you're buying a house undervalued. And that's what I focus on is a value add type property. We're buying an apartment undervalued. We're going to through some way, like either a rehab or repositioning the unit somehow, increasing rents. We're going to increase the cash flow there to where we can pay investors. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the cool thing about multifamily, it's not when you go to sell a multifamily unit, the value of the unit isn't determined on what the market says, it's determined on what your operational cash flow is. Mm-hmm. So if you can push however you can, you know, your net operating income, however high you can push that will determine, you know, the actual value of the property. And then hopefully through raising rents and doing rehabs and, you know, other value add, you know, projects, you can actually push the value higher. And then everybody, you know, say like you, you know, push the value by $10 million, then that gets divvied up amongst the general partnership and the limited partners. It's so powerful because it's, you know, it's, uh, again, like you said, it's not based on comparative market analysis. It's not, you know, whether or not mm-hmm. the house next door has a pool, it's based strictly on the income. And when you push that cash flow, when you, when you increase the, the net operating income, you're a, you're increasing the cash flow, which is putting more money into the pockets of the limited partners and the, the general partners, but you're also increasing the overall value of the property. So when you go to refinance yes. or you go to sell, uh, you've you've increased the value of the property. You know, it's I love yeah. I love commercial real estate. So, yeah. how do you go about? Because you are you've invested in a lot of them. You've invested in mobile home parks, self storage, assisted living facilities, and large multifamily. Correct. Yes. So, how did you go about? Because they're not. It's not like they are advertising them on bigger pockets. I mean, there, there's a few, but it's, in general, they're not. There's not some big ad that says, hey, come invest in our sink, you know, yeah. it's the SEC rules. I can't that's, to say, that's, that's illegal, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> if you see an ad, <laughs> let's talk about that. Don't take it. <laughs> we got a really question. Actually, you can advertise, you know, depending on which section yeah. of the, you know, 506 code, you can advertise to investors, yeah. but generally, no. 
And even that's questionable right now. That is purely through building a network. I really, so I just really sought out people that were educated in that space. It was interesting to me and, you know, just got to know them and just networked. And you know, the cool thing about the, you know, the syndication community, they all know each other. Mm-hmm. And so they're, you know, if somebody doesn't have a deal right then, they're going to be known if they can solve your problems. So they might refer you to a different syndicator. Yeah. Right. Um, sometimes they raise money for each other. So it's just really getting to, you know, to know that whole network. That's cool. So what are the benefits of diversifying? I mean, cause you've got stuff in so many different types of syndications. Yeah. So they're known as the uncorrelated assets of real estate. So I think my initial thought was, and you know, you can argue this strategy all day long is breaking up my real estate investments into different uncorrelated assets in real estate, just to kind of provide a, uh, a base. So if multifamily went down, maybe self-storage goes up because, you know, maybe there's a market correction and people have to move down to, uh, you know, a lower class, you know, take a step down mm-hmm. in the class of property they're living in, which means they downsize. So they have to put their belongings in self-storage, you know, mobile home parks. It's a, to- they're, it's a totally different clientele than multifamily assisted living entirely different clientele and age group than multifamily. So again, those are just, we're, I was looking at uncorrelated assets in order to kind of uh, diversify, if you want to use that word. Okay. Yeah. And then you're, uh, these are, I assume, are just kind of in multi multiple different markets, like location wise as well, mm-hmm. just depending yes. on. Yeah. The cool thing about syndication is that you can, you're leveraging everything. You're leveraging, leveraging other people's network, other people's credit in order to get the loan. Uh, other people's time in order to run the asset, other people's knowledge, because they can do it better than you. So it's really the ultimate leverage. You don't have to be an expert in everything. You do need to be able to underwrite the sponsor mm-hmm. or the operator and the deal. Like you, yeah. you know, I, I, I know people who get into syndications you know, and don't do those things. And then, you know, to me, that's very dangerous. But you, those are the two things that you do need to educate yourself on and be able to do is underwrite the sponsor and the deal. It's not a mutual fund. It's, you know. <laughs> no, you cannot. It's illiquid. You cannot yeah. get your money back until it's repositioned. Yeah. yeah. So. And they do go sideways, you know. Yes. Not have everyone. You, have you had any go sideways on you? Yeah, I've actually had uh, one go sideways on me. And, you know, again, I had underwritten the sponsor. You know, I felt very thoroughly in the asset. The hiccup came when the leasing agent left at the wrong time of year. And so the sponsorship team, that wasn't an issue that they had dealt with before. And they were like, oh, we always need to have like a backup redundancy system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a huge learning lesson for them. The cool thing, at, at least with the operators that I'm familiar with, is you know they really looked to at a way to make investors whole. You may not be in that particular quarter, but over time. So you know that is something, you know, if you're building your cash flow office syndications, I mean there are risks that you have to be able to to weather. And it, it would be the same thing if you were you know investing in a single family you know, your tenant vacates yeah. you know, either at predictably at the end of a lease or they get another job. Like you have to have reserves in order to, to weather those storms. When you were, I want to sort of circle back to your original investments in like turnkey. Um, yes. When you were starting off there, 
what kind of things did you need to learn that you didn't already know when you were getting started? Wow. Uh, I mean, up until that point in time, we knew how to work with a realtor to buy a property and to work with the lender and look, work with the, the you know, title company in order to get it closed. We had no, we had managed our properties. Either I had been managing house hacks or we managed, personally managed our property here in Colorado. So we had no idea how to work with property management. We didn't know what, where their role began and where ours, their role ended and ours began. We did, you know, what's that dynamic? So I brought in my experience of business management. I was like, okay, I want to, I'm not an employee. Um, and that was a huge learning experience for me because the property manager is in a unique position that they have to keep the end customer happy, which is the tenant. And also me happy because I'm a customer too. Yeah. And I don't envy their position at all. It's, yeah. it's really an art, you know, a good, you know, finding a good property manager. I mean, if you, if you have one, hang on to them because it's really an art. Also trusting in their systems. I had to be able to ask the right questions when I was vetting them to really get a thorough understanding of how they operated, what their systems were. And then I would take it one step further. I mean, the, the blogs that I see on how to vet a property manager, I feel like don't really dive in well enough on how to put them in a role play situation and challenge them on how they're going to deal with different, you know, certain situations. Mm-hmm. So you can go in and you can ask a property manager, have you ever dealt with an eviction? Yes. How are you going to deal with the eviction? You know, when this happens, what is the communication to the tenant? What is the communication to me? What are the next steps? Are you going to do it with my direction, without my direction? So, you know, understanding those type of challenging situations was something I had to learn how to handle too, because I had to learn how to ask the right questions. And those are all the things that help you mitigate particular downside of it, you know, asset management. Gotcha. Now, nowadays, what does the day in the life of a multiple asset investor really? And you have a full time job still, correct? Or have you been able to escape your job? I'm not fully escaped. <laughs> I've actually. Uh, so my uh, my goal this year was to transition into you know with the the status of a real estate professional. So I've backed off my hours of my full time job. I'm still there on a part-time consultancy basis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, currently I work um, as an investor relations manager for a syndication group. So that is part of my income there. And then I also manage my own assets and then I have my uh, training company as well. Gotcha. Well, talk to us about your coaching program. Yes. Yeah. I work with, uh, you know, people that are starting off in real estate that are, you know, wanting to scale portfolios either with turnkey or even better, burr investing. And I help them set up their initial strategy and systems in order to get either into their first property or five and beyond. Gotcha. Awesome. What kind of systems do you use for yourself or for the people who are using your coaching program that, that need those in place? Sure. So this is really where I try to get people out of the shiny object syndrome, you know, cause there's so many different solutions on the market and apps and plugins and whatever. So, but really honestly, when you're first starting out a simple spreadsheet and understanding which numbers you really truly need to track mm-hmm. and, and levers you need to pull in order to get the, the most returns out of your portfolio. So I start with spreadsheets. There are apps that I've vetted that I really like. And so I help, I will plug in an app every now and then. And then, you know, learning how to um, set up a team. Mm-hmm. So that's also uh, vetting the team, but getting a very strong team in place. That's a huge system as well. 
And then after that is having your checklist, like a checklist is a system. Yeah. So just keeping it as super simple as possible. I'm going to talk to uh, people all the time that are looking to either work with me or just like, you know, understand how they can get into real estate in general. And they're looking to get an LLC and start talking to lenders. And I'm like, what what market? (laughs) Yeah. They're like, I don't know yet. I'm like, well, you don't open an LLC yet. (laughs) (laughs) Don't talk to lenders. Like don't get your, you know, blood drawn and your DNA checked from a conventional lender yet because we don't, maybe they don't in blend in that market. We don't know. Yeah. yeah. So really just trying to put the, the dominoes in the right order for people. Yeah. Pick the market first and then start building the team there. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh even your investment strategy, like what is it that you want? Do you want mm-hmm. cash flow? Do you want a paycheck at the end? Like how much time are you willing to put into this? Yeah. You know, if you don't have that much time, don't flip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. That's a job. Yep. You know? oh, and don't, or don't wholesale either. Exactly. So many yeah. people, you know, you've got to begin with the end in mind. What do you want your life to look like once this is up and running, you know? And uh, right now there's a lot of people trying to get into multifamily syndication, things like that. And mm-hmm. you know, you, you've experienced that. There's a lot of moving parts to that. It's not a part-time job. I, no, I no, not at all. And nor is it a sole a sole proprietor job. It's a team. It's a team sport. Uh, I don't know. I can't think of a single syndicator that uh, doesn't have a, at least one partner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you, you're not. You don't want to be doing it by yourself. And so, you know, if you if you you know head off, I got a full time job, and I'm going to start you know syndicating. Uh, uh, you know, multifamily properties, you know, the only person I've known that has taken down a large apartment community while they had a full-time job was Joe Fairless. And he did it on one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he quit his job and to focus on, to focus on that. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he was, I think he was fortunate. Um, And then, and then he very quickly found a partner and, and that's how they, how they've scaled. So. Yeah. I mean, it it would be, a red flag for me was somebody who was trying to manage all the pieces on their own because we each have our own genius. I mean, it would be hard for me to understand that one person can be an amazing asset manager, acquisition manager, capital raiser, investor relations manager, like all rolled into one. Like if you are awesome, yeah. but there's an area that you enjoy more, let's match you with your zone and genius and just like plug you in there and build out your team. Mm-hmm. Well, Whitney, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Uh, if, it, if any of our listeners want to get to know more about you, uh, what's the best way that they can reach out to you? Sure. Yeah, you can um, visit my website, ashwealth.com, or you can email me directly at ashwealthco.com. Gotcha. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for being part of our show today. It was really great talking Bye. to you. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much. Well, that was Whitney Hutton from ashwealth.com. Check her out there. Also check out, you know, see if you can get a strategy session from her at ashwealth.com. It was great talking to her. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. So, all right. So what was your key lesson learned from today? I would say that you've got to have more than one property manager in your pocket when you're, when you're having someone manage your properties for you. You know, every property manager is, you know, we have talked about on previous episodes, it's, they're not always the best at scale. Like once they sort of hit a certain number of properties, a lot of property managers start to go a little bit crazy because <laughs> it's a really tough job. Yeah. Um, so 
Even if you've got the best, oh, I've got the best property manager in the world, always go out and network with other property managers and start asking around so you've got somebody else in your back pocket in case that person starts to to go downhill. Yeah. I mean, on top of that, it's really good to have multiple people for just about any job. I mean, even with the apartment syndication that she was in that she said kind of um, wasn't doing well, it was because they lost a leasing manager kind of the wrong time of year and they didn't have that backup situation. So, you know, having a backup for really important jobs is good, especially in this kind of situation. Fast moving, you always need someone. It's not something that you can wait on. So it's it's good to have that. And how, uh, what was the knowledge that she needed to uh, have that she needed to acquire before she got started? I mean, for her, she really just kind of like figured it out through doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she didn't, I mean, we, she, we didn't, she didn't really talk about any books. I think this may have been one of the only interviews that Rich Dad, Poor Dad was. <laughs> we didn't ask the question. Have we asked no, the question? No, well, usually that comes up in the aha moment question yeah. <laughs> or somewhere in that, like, you know, where, you know, that learning piece somewhere. I mean, we, we talked about it in a couple different ways, but it was never mentioned. She didn't really mention podcasts or anything like that. It seems like for her, it was a lot of doing and then networking with people mm-hmm. and, and learning from them. So, and, and that seemed to work really, seemed to have worked really well. For I'd her. say she, you know, she talked about having to learn how to deal with a property manager. She needed to learn how to uh, deal with a lender. When you're doing turnkey, a lot of the stuff is being done for you. But there's, as she said, it's not completely passive. And especially starting off, there's a lot of moving parts to acquiring a property. You know, when do you go to a lender? You know, what sort of documents are you going to have to get to them? What kind of questions are they going to ask? And you need to sort of learn how to sort of dealing with a, a lender who's working under Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and it's going to kind of feel like a, a colonoscopy and a, <laughs> and a tax audit at the same time. And she talked about having to sort of come understand the relationship between a property manager and the renter the tenant and the property manager and her is that they're the property manager is not an employee and sort of navigating that and trying to figure out how to navigate that. Yeah. Money. How, uh, how much money does it, did it take for her to get started? Well, if you're going to, for her, she was actually able to start off very, with very little money because she was able to borrow those first funds and it was back in the wild and woolly, uh, (laughs) days of 2002 when you could basically, you know, get almost 100% financing. And she was fortunate enough that she was able to turn that equity into more money. And that sort of launched her on her way. We didn't get into specifics about, like once you, when you're doing turnkey, you really need to come to the table with at least 20 to 25% down yeah. on every property. And it's not the kind of thing that you can really do creative financing on. And we didn't really talk about the price points that she was looking mm-hmm. at. I got the impression it was coming from like a 401k or other savings. Yeah. I would say knowing those two markets the way I know them, I would say she's probably buying around $100,000 properties price point. So she's probably having to come with about $25,000 per property. And she, they bought, ended up buying 10 of them. Yeah. She actually said that she got 20% down. 20% down. Okay. So $20,000 per property. So, you know, about $200,000, she was able to acquire 10 properties and uh, that those were cash flowing properties and they also uh, appreciated. 
uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit. So her return, she said overall returns like 55%, which awesome. is pretty, that's pretty great. Mm-hmm. How much time does she spend on her real estate endeavors? I didn't actually nail that down. Yeah. Um, well, she sells a part-time job. So yeah, part-time job. Yeah. <laughs> for the real estate too. I mean, she does multiple things though. So yeah. she's they still have some properties that they're holding, single family homes that they're holding. Um, she's involved in, in different syndications, et cetera. And then she's also got the coaching and then the investor acquisition job as well. So I, I would guess probably, you know, between all the different things, managing and speaking to people and, and looking for more deals and underwriting and such, she's probably working a full-time job when you combine the real estate with her part-time job. That's my guess. Um, which is a great way to do it if you can, you know, if you still need to work, if you can drop down to part-time in your, you know, nine to five sort of, or your, I don't know what I'm trying to say, your your W-2 job. That's yeah. what I'm... <laughs> when With that then it allows you to do more with real estate if you can make that work yeah. for you financially. It's a great way to kind of get the best of both worlds because you don't have to feel like you're... Yeah. It's, it's a little less scary. <laughs> well, and it's one of the one, wonderful things about the way that real estate investing builds financial freedom. You've got the, in, you've got the cash flow approach versus the nest egg approach. You know, with the nest egg approach, it'd be really difficult to to get to the point and go, well, it covers half of half of my income from my job. So we're going to turn that spigot on and start drawing from our nest egg. Whereas with real estate investing, you can build it up to the point where it's like, hey, you know, we've got enough cash flow that it covers half or more than half of my W-2 income. So I can probably drop down to half time or, yeah. you know, whatever. And then uh, location dependence. She can do it from anywhere in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a matter of... Um, oh, we got the tiny person. Yep. Hello, That's tiny cool. person. All right. Hold on. So, Let's so yes. Up. He's going to make noise. Let's just finish up. This is a family show. So yes. yes, you can do this from anywhere in the world. Yes. Obviously, barring some time zone difficulties. Yes. But And having, and having those teams. And yes. As long as your teams place. are in place, um, you can manage and turnkey properties, and then also, you know, continued management assets and, and syndications and things like that. So try and be quiet. All right. All right. Anything else? No. Nope. So that was Whitney Hutton from ashwealth.com. Uh, we appreciate all of her time. That yeah, was really great talking to her. No? Say it with me. Let's hit the road. Bye. And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.